Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about technology behind the energy news. I'm uh, the Rethink CEO, Peter White, and we've got with us today Rethink uh, Energy Editor Harry Morgan. Morning, Peter. Uh, Solar Analyst Andrew Swantonar. Hello there. And our new analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. Um, On the show today, um, we ask... What should Big Oil do now, now that it has record profits once again? And what should it do with, it, do with those profits? Um, we realise that virtually everyone has been underestimating the battery energy storage systems market. And we offer our own forecast, which is considerably beyond any that's been published so far. But ours, of course, is right. And we ask what's happened to renewable spending in the US because it's gone through the floor, and what can be done about it. And and if we've got time, we're going to talk about um, how hydrogen is transported around the market uh, in, a, in the future hydrogen market, because one of our social media posts has just gone viral on that, and uh, we want to perhaps dispel some of the myths around hydrogen. First, we go to Harry Morgan. So, big oil uh, then. I can tell from the way you wrote the article that they make your blood boil. Yeah, I'd say it's it's not far off the same article we write every quarter about big oil, especially over the past sort of year or so, um, since they've basically started making profits hand over fist. So, um, yeah, the results came out, trickled out over the, the last week, as they do. Uh, and, it, yeah, it was record profits. Um, so lots of companies saw the highest they'd seen since 2012, others since 2008. Um, and by some metrics, some companies, have, have it's their best performance ever, essentially. Uh, the reason's obvious. Uh, it's the high oil prices, uh, I mean, they're pretty much double what they were uh, um, in the same quarter of the previous year. So I think it was around $114 uh, per barrel was the average throughout the quarter, which is pretty unprecedented. Obviously, that's due to, in part, to the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. It's OPEC plus not bringing back um, their capacity online. I mean, we saw that was reflected today in the minor increase that was uh, OPEC plus announced, which was referred as an insult to Joe Biden. Um, and I think it was in total... It was around $60 billion that was profit generated across the big five. So that's Exxon, Chevron uh, tot- in the US, and then Total Shell, BP in Europe. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- these are big numbers. Um, and explain to the audience, uh, you know, is this simply, well, we're oil companies, we don't pay the oil price, we just sell it at that price? Or is, you know, and, and could they sell it less uh, at a lower price? Or are they just gouging the public? Um, you know, is there is it a more complex equation than that? I mean, so they're selling it at the market price. So obviously there's criticism for that. And I don't think there isn't really an alternative. Obviously they can sell it cheaper and they can offset their price, but that, it does very interesting things in terms of market dynamics. It's very difficult then to match supply and demand um, uh, equally because essentially there's just a shortfall of oil and, and people who who can afford to buy it. So, uh, I mean, but, but there's no said, supply and demand shortfall here at all. I mean, you, 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 uh, Russia is not having difficulty offloading the oil that it can't sell in Europe and the US. So that oil is finding a new way to market and. Qatar, perhaps, and a few others are. Well, no, that's natural gas. But but Saudi then is supplying us with more. But but we know that that we're still there's still less oil than there was prior to the pandemic being distributed around the world at the moment. 
Yeah, I mean, there's way less oil. And even, and even um, the big fives, they're delivering 10% less oil than they were pre-pandemic, um, which was a figure that shocked me, actually. Um, so it's I mean, not the about Russian, the Russian war at all. It's about price gouging by a cartel that should be illegal. Well, well I think the, the Russian oil, even if it's still all getting bought, it, it has to travel further and it has to go through various workarounds. And I think the insurance is getting uh, sanctioned on the tankers. So there's a few things like that that will then act as a excuse for price gouging. No, okay, so so you're right, and, and that is the case with oil, and oil is the bigger part for, for Russia. But for gas, that's not the case. I just send more down the pipeline to China. Mm. I think the 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 way that they can you can sort of look at this is that I don't think necessarily the oil majors can have a direct impact on they're going to, they're going to sell oil what, at what the market rate is going because they're going to, they won't want to capitalize down on their margins. They're not going to suddenly be like, okay, well we're going to do a bit of goodwill. We're going to sell oil to the market for cheaper. I think it's the government is a government level where we expect to see that, and we've seen that really in how windfall taxes have been applied. I mean, BP for example, its stock price hasn't holds nearly as much as ExxonMobil and Chevron due to the fact that it's heavily exposed to the UK windfall tax. I mean, the US while they're talking about windfall tax, very unlikely to see that push through the House and the Senate. Um, so yeah, we've seen companies like Exxon reach sort of record levels because we know that they are just going to sell oil at the at the market price um, to consumers um, without without much punishment. I mean, the reason they can do this and the reason the margins are so high as well is because during the pandemic, they when demand fell, they managed to sort of trim off their sort of laggard facilities and they managed to bring down their break even price. So that's largely why they're uh, they're actually doing particularly well at the moment. Right. Yeah, because um, they're being sensible. They're they're, they're getting going forward to a time when the price of oil is going to fall. Well, they know that they know it's going to fall, and they they want to get rid of un, unprofitable elements um, and let the buyer beware. If you, you're buying a uh, a field from uh, an oil field from BP or Shell, um, they're probably their worst performing um, assets. Um, there are other people who think they can make them perform, but in any Future. I mean, if it, it, think of the oil industry as facing the end of the world. Let's face it: electric vehicles don't use oil. Uh, as a result, um, electric vehicles by twenty thirty five, China and Europe won't release any new electric vehicles. <coughs> so, fifty percent of the world's cars will not use oil. No market can take a fifty percent drop in demand and keep. The price high, so this is this is the last act. This is the um, band playing on the Titanic. Um, yeah, definitely. I think so. That's why this is, and this is largely the crux of the article. Well, the interesting thing is what they're doing now, and what and what they're doing with this win, uh, this windfall of this nest egg they've got coming from these high margins, and um, and what they're doing is it's, it's a combination of buybacks and dividends. They're trying to. Re- um, sort of regain strong investor sentiment. They're trying to reassure those that lost huge amounts of money during the pandemic. They don't want to scare investors that oil won't be with us in 20, 30 years, which obviously it's not going to be. But what they're not doing is they're not they're not investing. Well, firstly, they're not investing really. I mean, they um, they're investing half as much uh, as the amount of money they've actually distributed to shareholders over the past quarter. Um, far less than they were investing pre-pandemic. Um, and the investment that they are doing is largely in more oil. So um, ExxonMobil, for example, are expanding themselves in the Permian Basin, Total, uh, expanding their operations in Angola, BP in the US. Um, it, I mean, it's a joke. I mean, Exxon and Chevron are both looking at increasing production through to 2027. Um, so we, we've mapped um, 
the the rate of uh, of passenger vehicles and trucks and uh, uh, and other vehicles and their use of oil going forward and we f- we find that nothing much happens that's bad until about 2027 so they've got They've got five more years of this, and the market doesn't start to collapse because the rate of production of cars um, will continue to be high enough that the number of internal combustion engines will slightly increase year on year up to about 2025 and then slightly decrease to about 2027. And then they fall off a cliff because the percentage of car vehicles there will be electric vehicles around the world in the, in the major markets, um, goes up and up and up until it goes beyond 50%. And then suddenly there's a 10% drop in the amount of, there's a 5% drop uh, in the amount of oil that the world needs. And it suddenly falls off a cliff. And then that's fine, but because it's a structural change, the following year, another 5% drop. And at that point, the price of oil goes to $20 and it's all over. Now, there'll be mopping up operations that will last till about 2031. So this industry must see that, surely. And, and, and if I'm Bernard Looney running BP... Am I? It's my job to give money to shareholders to take the the poor money, the, the money from poor people, or, or paid on petrol, and give it to shareholders who are just going to keep it. Does that do do the future of BP any good, or do I completely change strategy? Stop buying my shares back. Stop giving good dividends. Plow it into as many. Um, uh, renewable energy. I mean, they've got a lot of renewable energy projects, but they're boring to fulfil that. They should be paying down their debt because their asset base, when their asset base is not big enough to cover their debt, they're bankrupt. And they need to be yeah. paying, paying down their debt and, and they, need, they don't need to be borrowing to fund renewables. They've got to use their cash flow, half of it to pay down debt and the other half plough into renewables. And, and the last man standing will be the one who owns the most renewables come 2029, 20, 2030, and they'll be bigger than anybody else on the planet. But they're not doing that. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean BP specifically, they've got they've got a bee in their bonnet because of the windfall tax in the UK, really, and that's what they're um, what they're complaining about is that well, if we if we're not going to have the capital to invest in renewable energy, we won't, um, and we'll expect the government and we'll expect governments to offset the price of petrol to consumers, and we expect governments to invest in renewable energy, um, which is probably which is a mistake. I mean, as we, yeah, as we said, things aren't going to get much better, but buy but the buyback program. Programs are becoming much more expensive to do at the current um, price of the stocks, and things like inflation hasn't hit the service contracts of these old majors yet. So that's yeah, and, and the windfall margin. tax. The windfall tax. You've written about it before, but the windfall tax. Let's face it, you're getting more tax anyway because they're charging more, and you're charging VAT on it. So yes. so your your VAT bill, your your VAT income is going up and up and up in line with BPs, and so and then you charge a windfall tax on the profit as well. I mean, it's it's a one off. It's not an every year thing because it would make people leave your shores. Uh, it's pointless, and that's uh, has that been widespread around Europe or is it just the UK? It's just the UK, but um, it's well, yeah. It's like it's you, there's there's some in Italy as well, um, and there's similar measures being implemented in, in other markets. But it's the UK one that the BP are particularly pointing to, um, or certainly, I mean, that's largely because of the, the media that I'm generally exposed to. But I think, and you say, Peter, obviously, it's, that you, there's this cliff coming in 2027. But I do think that there's going to be a huge deflation in big oil before then. I mean, the performance I don't think can ever be. I think this quarter could well be the best quarter 
big oil will have for the rest of time. Um, I, I've, sto- I've, I've followed the stock market for, for 9, 35 years. I reckon that they're smart enough to know three to four years ahead of a collapse. So they're already thinking in one or two years' time, this stocks go to nothing. Yeah. I mean, and like, there's other things at play here. Obviously, the global recession that's inevitably coming is going to dent their demand. Um, I mean, the climate, the climate change and the public pressure will see... I think, I think we'll see more windfall taxes, to be honest. I think we saw um, the UN... Uh, Guterres saying talking about the grotesque greed of these companies which is only going to put more pressure on them uh, and that will impact their value that will impact their growth um, it will impact the performance on the stock market and as we said yeah oil demand has peaked um, and I think if anything the fact that oil prices will remain high for at least two three years while this uh, while the Russian embargo is ongoing um, while that will be the, the case prices will remain high and the shift towards EVs will only accelerate. So I think the 2026-2027 cliff that we're seeing is actually moving closer um, through this sort of massively impressive performance we've seen from the oil majors. So while they're trading at six six or seven times their revenue at the moment, which they would normally say is low, in an industry that is destined for the scrap heap, that's high, I I think. I think think that we've seen an 11% dip in their value since... In the past month, so I think that's set to continue. I think I think that they've they've peaked. I think that if I was doing anything now, I'd be shorting these companies. But um, I suppose I'm not going to give that advice um, publicly. Yeah, well, we uh, it's, it wasn't know, financial advice. Saying, this on a pub, saying that saying, no, it's not not financial advice. <laughs> He's not a qualified financial. Advice. It was a joke or something. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Meanwhile, Andres is uh, you know phoning his stockbroker to short uh, BP. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's shift on. Otherwise, we'll sound like a broken record on oil. Um, <clears throat> so we just produced a report um, on our second report on uh, uh, green energy storage um, and uh, or battery energy storage systems, as they usually refer to BESs. And we're, there's two key things to this. I mean, I, I'm not going to hark on about. It. You can see, uh, go to the website, read the story. Uh, and the story links to the the, the the forecast. Forecast can be bought. The story is free. Um, but um, most people forecasting the battery energy storage market um, don't really see it. They're mostly forecasting battery per se, and and for that they're following the car industry. We caught out Wood McKenzie, S and P Global, and um, and Bloomberg uh, New Energy Finance all under estimating the rate at which electric cars and, and the IEA all underestimating the rate at which electric vehicles are going to be acquired. Um, and they've adjusted upwards every quarter their numbers to copy uh, something more like ours. Um, the problem with that is you don't really see the demand for battery because if you're underestimating electric vehicles, you're underestimating battery. You then get to the stage where people are using this inside the grid and the same battery, people are talking nonsense. They come up with these wonderful ideas like, oh, you can take them after they're depleted out of cars and use them on the grid. Oh, they'll just set fire to the grid then. Um, so so the um, uh, people assuming that there's going to be plenty of battery there. We've heard a few problems with supply chain, but the truth is the um, um, most forecasts have about one quarter of the battery 
uh, energy storage systems that there are going to be. Uh, this is the first forecast that, that considers it properly. And we've only done the uh, global installations in short term. That's the four-hour uh, energy storage on the grid, So uh, plus uh, and in homes. So um, buy that report if you're interested in that market. But at the same time, there's a massive opportunity here. And it's caused by all the things that we've been discussing on these podcasts time and time again, which is um, often there's a trigger like uh, the Russian war, but, but there, 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 there's going to be a shortfall in materials. In any rapidly growing market, there's a shortfall in raw materials. And there's a land grab for raw materials. And that's going on right now in lithium energy, uh, lithium ion batteries. Um, but at the same time, that causes a price spike and that gives an opportunity to batteries that are not designed around lithium. So the one thing that this forecast does is it attempts to quantify what's the size of that opportunity, which is not lithium. I'm not going to give the numbers here. You can go and read the story. And if you really want the numbers, you can read the um, forecast, which comes with a, a full global spreadsheet out to 2050. Um, but there's a staggering opportunity for non-lithium-ion products up to about 2027, by which time they will have to have uh, learned how to produce um, their batteries for less than lithium-ion, otherwise they'll be doomed uh, into the uh, dustbin of history. But we do think a number of companies will come through that, and this report lays it all out and names them all. Okay. Um, does anyone want to say anything? Yeah, there's there's a little tidbit of news that I think is related that I saw from China, which is that the world's first uh, gigawatt scale, gigawatt hour scale sodium ion battery factory was commissioned in Anhui province in China um, recently. Wow. So that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, lucky I mentioned sodium ion on the list <laughs> of technologies. I only mentioned it because of the uh, Chinese interest. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so sodium ion batteries uh, are one of those, um, along with um, uh, nickel hydrogen and some some others. Um, there are quite a few, and we, we list them all in the back of the report. Okay, um, that's all going to change rapidly over time. But, I mean, one of the questions that um, we're going to deal with in the next story, uh, and I think is it's, it is really... What do you do in a period of hypergrowth when people are trying to install things rapidly, when suddenly um, people have under-forecast it? Uh, and whose fault is that? Um, people have under-forecast it and not been prepared. Mining hasn't been prepared for the rare earth metals that are, are in the cathodes of uh, lithium-ion batteries. Um, the same issue has happened around the polysilicon factory short, shortfall. We, we get these little peaks that are, are su supply-constraint-oriented, uh, where the price goes up. Um, and I just want to move to the next story, which is where Andres has, has just um, reported uh, the American, uh, is it um, ACP? Yeah, Clean Power Association. A, yeah, Clean Power Association. And and what what we um, what we're seeing here is a massive collapse in the implementation of renewables in um, in Q2 in America. Yeah. Uh, so. In Q2, utility-scale solar deployments were down 53%, and wind was down 78%. And batteries managed to grow only 13%, which I gather is actually a bit disappointing for them, isn't it? Um, 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, considering they've only just started, so that it's from such a low base. Anything below 100% in battery right now is insanely low. And it's almost hard to list all of the potential or all of the factors. I think one of them is that people were expecting new tax credits for renewable projects, so they delayed it for that reason. Obviously, solar modules are more expensive. Things in general are more expensive, such as shipping. You had the Q1 lockdowns in Chinese ports. Uh, there's so many things I, that I will have forgotten another two or three that I probably mentioned in the article. And the, and the original polysilicon shortfall as yeah, well. Yeah, that as well. I mean, uh, yeah, we, we, when we were, when you first uncovered that and we started talking about it openly to our customers, there was a lot of panic in the market. And I think the market effectively froze at that point and said, well, hold on, we can't commit to these finances going forwards. Um, you know, all of our projects for the next two or three quarters are in trouble, and and they had to be either be rethought, refinanced, or or they had to just wait and check that that they weren't. It would have been terrible for a business to spend an extra twenty million dollars on uh, on solar panels if 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 they just waited a quarter and that they would have got them cheaper. So I think there's been a pause, as well as. Um, as you say, other 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 um, uh, constraints on on supply. Yeah, there was a, even before the Department of Commerce investigation into Southeast Asian ones, which is the big one. That I think I forgot to mention it. There's just so many. I even forgot to mention that one. Uh, there were before that in Q1 because I think April to June is a bit late to actually impact commissioning figures for for Q2 when it's imports. Um, you know, before that there was the withhold release order on some Chinese imports. I think that was to do with polysilicon sanctions. So there's just so right. many different things. So, Harry, what's what's the you know seventy eight percent down on the on the previous on, um, quarter's wind uh, uh, implementations? I mean, what was that planned, or was, was did you expect a a, a, sl- a slow up, or is that just is that onshore? Um, it, well, I mean, it's all onshore because yeah, the US market's still very. Um very immature in terms of offshore it's i think there's two there's two things um really affecting it firstly it's now if you look at the lead time if you look at when the disruption from covid first hit we saw the battery supply that was now um just over two years ago too so yeah what 26 27 months Uh, that's typically about the time we'd expect to see turbines be the turbines being ordered to the turbines being actually delivered and installed so that's the disruption we're seeing now is the actual delivery of the turbines suddenly maybe a little a little bit of a shortage in the market although the bigger thing is the phase out of the of, of production tax credits we saw a huge sort of spike in u.s installations at the end of last year so a lot of the shortfall this year is the fact that yeah people rushed to get in ahead of that deadline um and that's why we've seen this sudden reduction i, I think it doesn't necessarily reflect um, the US market potential and growth as a whole, obviously with Biden coming in and with this, this climate spending package being uh, approved, um, hmm. then we will expect to see things start to kick back on again. I think there'll, there'll be um, there will will be a lot of funding for uh, subsidy of renewable energy within that, and there ha- there has been uncertainty whether or not that would be the case in the past. So I think that confidence in the market is suddenly going to come back, and I think that we will expect to see onshore wind in the US see some sort of revival. Okay, so there's there's one other um, story. It's, it's really quite interesting, um, where which is, which is from last week, and it was um, it was about uh, H two site um, uh, claiming a um, 
um, getting a, a round of investment, basically. And, and we wanted to look at what they did. Harry spoke to them. And um, it turns out that they got some money from Breakthrough Energy Ventures, NG and Equinor. Um, and they, they're they a Spanish startup. And they, um, they, they, they used a, a membrane technology, which we've said they use, um, is it palladium-like? Um, uh, uh, mesh um, in in their hydrogen transport, f- um, and my God, fourteen thousand uh, um, readers uh, re- read the LinkedIn post, and quite a few of them have commented on the insanity or the wisdom of that particular strategy. Harry, I mean, obviously, um, the first thing they did is looked up the price of palladium. Um, I, did you get a very clear view from uh, from H two site whether or not they really do use palladium or or metals like palladium as as they, we actually put it? It's it's, it's again it's a cut as close. It's, it's not a, probably a very satisfactory answer, but it's a cut as close to the chest situation with H two site. I think. Um, it's a. I think that they probably. I, from what I've read, it definitely seems like there is palladium involved. Uh, palladium lattices. So, I, ideally, in the, for their situation, a very, very small amount of palladium um, used to carry um, used to carry hydrogen on those membranes. I probably sit, if I'm honest, on the side of the people who have commented sceptically on the article. I think they talk about how. Um, the pipeline can allow hydrogen to be blended up to thirty percent in a wide range of pipelines um and i don't think that that's a technology that's going and so be able to use that and then de-blend it at the other side i don't necessarily see that as a the way that the market will progress in terms of hydrogen transport in terms of using those old turbines up to 30 percent. i think uh, old pipelines up to 30 percent. i mean why are you going to invest in so much money in a in upgrading an infrastructure that's only going to work for five, ten years before you actually need to upgrade it to a complete 100% hydrogen. Surely that, yeah, you go gradually into the hydrogen market, gives you gives you another eight, nine years before you need something that's going to carry pure hydrogen, uh, gives you time to do some more R&D, perhaps stretch that uh, envelope out to 50% hydrogen, and then, and then uh, you know, if you've got a de-blending technology uh, that works and is cheap, then you um, then you, you can do this gradually. We've had a problem with evolution over revolution throughout, though, because it always favours fossil fuel companies, and they always bury their head in their sand and refuse to change. I think so, and I think that this is what deblending. I think this is what a lot of the market are worried about. They're worried that this is a push from the oil and gas industry to keep the natural gas pipelines flowing with natural gas, uh, using thirty percent hydrogen in. A natural gas pipeline so using 30 percent hydrogen 70 percent natural gas it's only a seven percent reduction in the emissions because obviously the gas is being delivered at a, a higher a higher flow rate so yeah. in terms of the vo- uh, volume of gas being the energy being transported so it's not a material impact that you need on the gas network so i think that's why i would probably put a question mark next to the technology i mean they're using it i i also think because they're Using the technology and trying to push it into multiple markets at once means that even as a company, HTSI probably don't really know where they're going and don't really know where the technology sits. They're also I think they probably the don't care. They've got a product, haven't they? They've basically got a couple of membrane products and they're, they're willing to sell them to fossil fuel companies if they want to buy them. They're willing to sell them to anyone who, who will buy them. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I, that, that obviously makes sense. But that, yeah, they're also looking at it in the transport industry and looking at it, at it as a more... Um, 
energy efficient way of cracking ammonia, which is what, where I think the, the technology, if anywhere, has its potential. I think right. the ability, I think hydrogen will be transported as ammonia, as liquid hydrogen, as in other different carriers in multiple different ways, depending on where it's more economic to do one or the other. But th- across that, there will be this need to decarbonize the uh, not decarbonize, reduce the energy intensity of the, the overall processes. So making the production of ammonia from hydrogen more efficient and then the production of hydrogen and then vice versa. So actually, yeah, cracking the ammonia to produce hydrogen. So uh, that's where H2 site have got their, yeah, their second operation and potentially that's where they could have impact. Obviously, they've demonstrated, as we talked about in the article, at a very small scale at the moment, but that... They're talking around sort of handling costs of around 80, 80 cents per kilogram of hydrogen, which is expensive. I mean, it is around half the cost of hydrogen we're projecting by 2030. So I'm not necessarily that bullish on this technology. Natural gas says, you know, has handling costs of 130% uh, if you want to put it in a ship and drive it to the other side of the world. Um, so that's not necessarily a, a, a contradiction in, uh, uh, that doesn't eliminate the market entirely. I mean, we, we have got a problem in places like Japan and Korea, where they don't have a renewables infrastructure, they're not really going to support a hydrogen industry. They're not; they wouldn't be able to fund it. They, 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 if they had any spare electricity, they use it on their own grid. So someone is going to transport hydrogen to those economies uh, in a ship, you know. Uh, um, and, and ridiculous as that seems, and it may add. Uh, make the price 300% of, of what we get it down to. But that's what's that's still true of natural gas. That's that's what happens with natural gas. I mean, it wasn't too long ago Japan was, well, before the spike in natural gas prices were paying $10 per kilogram. So, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, it will be higher now. Um, obviously, that's a lousy way to run an economy uh, if suddenly the natural gas price spikes. But it is what they do. They import everything and they export it at a higher grade, uh, having um, built things out of it. So um, I think Japan and Korea are a special case in points there um, for, for some kind of different hydrogen transport from everybody else. Everyone else make it where they need it, I mean, if, if they can. Um, the... Um, but it's interesting though. You look on the on the. Okay, I'm not comparing the price of cobalt with palladium, uh, which is significantly higher. But but even so, um, cobalt is very expensive, and using it in cathodes for uh, lithium ion batteries, um, it's been diluted. It's been reduced. It's been cut um, to about five percent of what it was, um, and they found new sources. So. Um, and then gradually they're finding a replacement. So uh, the idea of actually having a deep blending um, uh, um, uh, uh, material, a membrane in in, in, a, in a, a natural gas isn't impossible. People keep saying it's economically suicide and it's and it's engineering uh, in engineering terms it's impossible. None of those are true. It's it's probably not what's going to happen. Um, you know, engineers are wonderful people. They can make almost anything happen if they think about it long enough and if enough of them are involved. So uh, anyone who says, oh, just just look at the price of palladium, it's not possible, um, is missing the point. Uh, I, think, I think we agree it's not possible because, as you say, that's not who the customer is going to be. Um, all of these discussions um, and the weekly analysis are free on the website uh, rethinkresearch.biz. You click the energy button. 
Um, read weekly analysis for free. The reason we do it is to convince you that our forecasts and the data that we provide in our paid section of our of our website are um, worth investing in. And um, hopefully um, part of this podcast process is to help convince you of that. Um, and by all means, go to the website and take a look at uh, both the podcast and anything else that we do. Uh, we're going to end the the uh, this morning's. We haven't heard from from um, from Bogdan. I wanted to make a, a small comment on um, hydrogen transportation, actually, uh, because there's a there's a study that came out recently warning against the um, potential adverse effects of hydrogen leakage into the atmosphere. So I want to ask you, Harry, what do you think? How do you think that plays into um, all these companies that we talked about? Yeah, so I, I saw this study. I haven't actually read it uh, myself yet. I haven't actually gone through the actual details. Um, I mean, hydrogen itself is a greenhouse gas, um, and it, it does have more a greater warming effect than uh, than CO two. Um, so there is that there is a risk there. I think we've had discussions with people in the past, and I'm not going to go into the detail of those now about um, hydrogen becoming water in the atmosphere and that affecting the water cycle. I don't. That's not an issue that we necessarily need to worry about. But <laughs> hydrogen hydrogen being hydrogen leakage into the atmosphere is something that companies need to get ahead of. Um, it's, uh, but there are, there are technologies ready to do that. So I don't think um, people will point to this study and they'll say, oh, well, this is a reason not to invest in hydrogen. Um, it's not. It's a reason to prepare for hydrogen now. It's a reason to, uh, to ready and to upgrade uh, transmission infrastructure. Um, and I think that is how you get ahead of the problem. I, think, I don't think there's necessarily... I don't, I don't think it needs to be a damning... Uh, paper. I don't think it needs to have a huge impact on the deployment of hydrogen, personally. Um, but the, yeah, it does. There does need to be. There do need to be technology in place to make sure it doesn't leak. I think what people fail to understand in all these things is they fail to understand how um, technologies build momentum. And hydrogen is a required um, solution for things like steel and cement. Uh, and there's already a, an existing hydrogen industry. So as green hydrogen comes on board, it builds momentum. And it's from that momentum that its price falls and from the price falls that it encompasses new markets. And you have to picture all these changes happening one after the other uh, to get to the point where we have in, in our annual um, primary electricity report of the amount of hydrogen of, of uh, you know, $10 trillion worth of hydrogen uh, having been uh, sold by uh, 2050. It, 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 it's one step at a time. First, you bring down the price. Then you, you use it in certain key situations. Then you start to use it more in transport. Then you, you look at the reduction in the fuel cell manufacturing costs and slowly but surely it starts to absorb more of the energy industry not all of it it's and 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 there shouldn't be you shouldn't be in in favor of it or against it it's going to happen it's inevitable um the amount of money that's been spent on the projects that we've seen and that we've reported on that's going to happen there's so many people who think it's a political decision am, am i for it or against it it doesn't matter it's inevitable it's going to be part of the, the energy mix Okay, um, on that, thank you, Bogdan. I'm glad you asked the question. Um, next time, we're going to pick one of your stories to talk about. And um, 
uh, I'm going to call into the podcast there. As we say, www.rethinkresearch.biz slash energy. Go take a look. Bye, bye for now.